around. If we can find our seats, that'd be great. Good stuff. The last eight weeks, we've been dealing with this question and issue that we call rooted faith. Helping us to understand how God desires to have our faith rooted and established. So that we find ourselves in difficult times, not wavering for our understanding, but actually grasping what God is doing, and how he's trying to move in our lives in particular, specific ways. So we talked about, in the initial area, about our faith foundation. Understanding that our faith is not built upon the Bible per se, but our faith is built upon the reality of who Jesus was and what he said. That Jesus died for my sins, and he rose... Three days later, so he could help me to establish a relationship with God the Father as my God. Showing me how to do that and enable me to do it because of what he did when he died on the cross. That we have that testimony established by the apostles who wrote all these things down prior to 70 A.D. We walk through these issues and understanding. Then we begin to understand that the Bible itself as we have it today has been continued to be affirmed as written to us by these same apostles who give us understanding and direction so that we can continue to know who God is and how he desires to work in our lives. So we moved on with this issue of finances last week. And we talked about how our finances are such an integral part of us as people. And that God says finances are such a big deal that he doesn't allow us to own them. Instead, he tells us we need to manage them. And that when we manage our finances correctly, they become a plus to us, not a minus. But when we try to own them, they beat on us, they knock us down, and they cause us to be unable to respond to God and to the relationships of people around us. So we dealt with that area. Then last week we started getting a little pickier. We started to deal with the issue, and Eric brought it up. It was his fault, okay, about husbands and wives. Okay, so he dealt with this issue of husbands. He said, husbands have clear directives from Scripture. In fact, in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, and I want you to have your Bibles with you to turn there. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, it talks to us about some directives in relationship to husbands and in relationship to wives. And it begins to set out a series of principles or a concept that we refer to as the principle of submission. The principle of submission. As Paul lays out this idea, we find ourselves struggling with it a bit and sometimes misunderstanding what he's trying to say in relationship to wives and to husbands. Paul recognizes this, and he tries to spend more time with husbands who are slower to understand things. Okay? So he spends a lot of verses telling us how we are to love our wives. Now you think, I'm kidding. I'm really not. I'm really not. He, he lays this out. He says, husbands, you're to love your wives. Here's how emphatically it's supposed to be. The same as Jesus who gave his life up for the church. That's how much you're to love your wives. You're to die for her if necessary. That's the attitude you need to have. You're to submit so much that you're willing to do anything to grant her a sense of fulfillment 
and a recognition of her calling in life. Then he tells women, he said, women, you need to submit to your husbands. That's it. That's it. I go, come on. As they're the head, we go, what are you talking about? I'm going to work with that a little bit later today because I want you to understand this principle of submission that we actually see on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, Jesus illustrates the principle of submission to a greater purpose. That there are things in our life that are more important than ourself. That's what he illustrates in Palm Sunday presentation. You see, this Sunday marks this special, incredible day when Jesus begins the Passion Week, the final seven days of his life. And he clarifies within it his purpose and his calling for us. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of Passover. There are something like two million people in Jerusalem. It is packed with people. Jesus comes in on a donkey, actually the colt of a donkey. And so you can go, okay, exactly what are we talking about? You'd have to go back a little bit to understand that what it's referring to is that after a king would establish a victory in a war situation, where initially he would be on a war stallion, he would be on a stallion horse to prove his, his power and his strength and his demand that people submit to him. Afterwards, the king would come back home and he would often ride on a donkey as a statement of peace, that he wasn't at war. It's the picture of the difference between coming in on Abram's tank okay, or a limousine. It's the same picture. So first of all, the general in our case would come in on this tank, on this powerful armored vehicle to start the war. But when he was finished, he comes back home and he gets in this beautiful limousine with the top open and waves everybody. That's the picture. Jesus is coming in and he's saying, I have won the battle over sin and temptation. I have defeated Satan and even death itself. I showed you that with Lazarus. So now I come in peace to Jerusalem saying, accept me as the Prince of Peace. And the people appear to do just that in the beginning. In fact, it says they lay down their robes and they lay palm branches down honoring him as the king of kings. They cry out, Hosanna, God, save us. And then they add to it, not written in the scriptures, from the Romans. From the Romans. Set us free. Kick their butts. Call down fire from heaven. Make it happen. Step us up again. You are the king, the king of kings. Do what only you can do. And it says, then at the same time, and this is by the word, we're in John chapter 12, which I moved us to. At the same time, it says some of the Jewish leaders turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. If they don't keep screaming this king thing, the Romans are going to come down and they're going to wipe us all out. That's what they're talking about. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? Maybe you don't understand. If the people don't show praise and recognition of who I am, the very rocks themselves, the earth that I made, will cry out and declare me as the king of kings, as the one who brings peace to the entire world, but not in the way that they want it. 
Not in the way that they understand it. They don't get the purpose behind what Jesus has done and what he's about to do. See, that's what's going on here. Where Paul talks with this principle of submission to wives and husbands, Jesus illustrates the principle of submission in his relationship to God the Father. So in a little bit, you're going to find him at the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out to God in agony and saying these final words, Not my will, but thine be done. Do you see the submissive nature? He says, there's a greater purpose here than my kingdom. This was the final temptation of Jesus. It was the reiteration of the earlier temptation that happened at the beginning of his ministry. When he goes out and he finds himself impacted by Satan, and Satan tells him, jump off these cliffs, turn these stones into bread, show yourself. And Jesus says, you don't test the Lord your God. And now he finds himself in the most difficult situation of all. Millions of people saying, be our king. Be our king. And on one end, he submits to that concept or idea. But then he turns to him and he says, but I can't be the king you want me to be. And then they turn on him. Because he's unwilling to be this king who shows a dominant power and destroys the Romans, they turn on him. And they bring him to crucifixion and death on a cross. You see, Paul is teaching in this principal concept of Ephesians the same principle that we live in this upside-down kingdom where things are not as they actually appear to be. That how you're supposed to respond is not how you think you're supposed to respond. That we are people who gain in order to give. That we are people who die in order to live. That we are leaders who serve and submit in order to be considered leaders. That we who are first now will be last in the kingdom of heaven. But we who are last now will be first. You see, we begin to understand this upside down kingdom concept, this countercultural picture. That I, as a husband, die for my wife when she's just a piece of property that I own that's there to have children for me so that I can extend my legacy, which is the picture of the Roman world. Paul says, not even. Oh, no, no, no. She's a picture of the church and Jesus. The two of you together are to be a declaration of God's power, of God's plan, of God's purpose here on this earth. And you are to be willing to die for her. And she must be willing to submit to you, to respect you, to honor you. And when that happens within the marriage structure, I will do something otherworldly. Something incredible. Because the power of God will be in your midst. And you'll find yourself discovering this weird thing. You'll have this attitude of humility you actually will want to do what I just said. Some of you women are going, that's never going to happen, Pastor Lee. Oh, but it will. And that's what's so incredible about it. And husbands, you'll find yourself so willing to do whatever it is for your life, loving them so much, you're willing to serve them in any situation that you will massage their feet at night. Some of you women are going, you'll never do that. Yes, they'll even do that. That's the marvelous principle. 
of the upside-down kingdom. You see, God has established a cosmos, a cadence in our cosmos that accomplishes a purpose and intention. And when we listen to the beat of God, when we follow the directive that he's laid out in Scripture, we begin to experience the wonder of God in our lives. And we begin to go, oh my goodness, look what God has done again. And look what God has done again. And when we don't follow the cadence, instead we get off beat. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Then we also experience the negative aspects of life. Because what is done is done. What is said is set. God says, I don't change these principles. And Jesus tries to tell us this over and over and over. This wonderful picture of submission within the marriage structure and God to man, where Jesus himself will submit himself to the place where he's willing to become part of the cross. You see, it doesn't matter whether you are Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or President Obama or God himself in the form of Jesus. You are called to submit one to another. And that's the principle of Palm Sunday. And if you don't get anything else out of what I'm going to be sharing with you today as we talk about the purpose, get that. That's the principle of Palm Sunday. Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God himself in human form, chooses to submit himself and become the sacrificial lamb to provide for us freedom and hope and forgiveness and a relationship with the Father. Watch this simple clip that maybe brings this home a little bit better than what I just shared. It was not the first principle of humility that Jesus presents to us throughout his life. And then as he presents himself as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is the principle that we are to grab a hold of, that we're to grasp onto, that we're to hold tightly to. And it's the principle he tries to teach us here. John chapter 12, if you're with your Bibles, John Chapter 12. In this particular series of clarifications to us by John, we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem, establishing himself with a visible crown, but getting ready to place upon himself an invisible cross. It says, The next day the crowd had come. They were there for the festival. They heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, so they took palm branches. They went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means God saves. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it as is written, Don't be afraid. Your king is coming in peace. He's coming seated on a donkey's colt. So we see the beginning of the week starts with this cry of Hosanna. Jesus saying, I've finished the war. I've won the battle over Satan and sin and temptation. But that's not going to allow you to win the battle as well. Unfortunately, another step will have to be taken. Now, this is incredible. As I said, there are over two million people here. And the emphasis in this passage is that Jesus for the first time ever, declares himself as the king of kings. Prior to this time, he's always in the background. Don't tell anybody. Don't share what I did. Keep this to yourself. Go see the priests. Now, suddenly, he steps up and he says, Yes, I am who I said I am. This is the declaration, but it's not who you think I am. 
when he refuses to save them from the Romans because he has an invisible purpose that's greater than any person, even himself, they demand his death, not understanding that that's what he was going to offer all along. That was his intention. That was the necessity all along. You see, behind the cries of Hosanna, Jesus is aware that there's an invisible purpose that he's been called out for. What do we mean by an invisible purpose? I'm going to work this a bit. 1800s, a terminology referred to as spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation. It was the idea that living organisms could suddenly pop up anywhere from non-living organisms, and that explained what we call today disease that people got sick just for random reasons perhaps even providentially from God but not because of what we know today a series of germs that could infect and destroy you as a person you see the concept or idea was that this cannot be. There is nothing outside that's, that's invisible that somehow is affecting this visible world. We live in this visible world, and this is all there is. It's all there ever will be. And those of us who are going to heaven will experience the next world then. But while we are down here, disease or dis-ease, as we want to use that term there, dis-ease is simply the way life works. It has no reason. It's just random, spontaneous, just happens. Some people die, some people get sick. That's just the way it is. This is the medical field in the 1800s. Louis Pasteur comes along and he says, you know something? I don't think you're right. In fact, here's what I think. I think there are invisible organisms that you cannot see, that actually carry these diseases, and they are alive themselves. They're passed on by touching someone's skin, or perhaps they live in food. There's some kind of invisible world that's impacting the visible world, and this invisible world of microorganisms or, or germs, as they would eventually be called, are there, but you can't see them. And so the germ theory of disease was presented. And the response of the medical community was you're crazy. You're nuts. You're seeing things that can't be seen. Oh no, another germ. Oh no, another germ. Run, everybody run. You're a crazy man, Lewis. What are you talking about? Lewis says, you don't understand. It's not that crazy. I've watched how things work. When patients come with another patient that come in, you come in contact with him, you get the same disease. All these things, they're being carried on. There's something going on. I find that when people eat bad food, they get really sick. They didn't call it bad food then. They just called it food. Didn't taste as good as normal. We recognize that that food is bad for you because it has germs that could even kill you and destroy you. They said, you're telling me, Lewis, that something we can't see impacts what we can see. That this invisible stuff floats on the air, lands on, infects food, and infects us. 
I don't believe in that. This invisible world that we're surrounded by, these invisible living organisms that impact our visible world. And he said, yes, that's it. And they said, you're nuts. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. How many of you believe in invisible germs, microorganisms? A lot of you have got those little squirt jars, don't you, that we use all the time now? I go into the hospital. There's everywhere. You go into using, you're squirting ourselves constantly because we are scared we're going to get caught. Victoria's like carries one in her pocket. You know? Yeah, there's, ah, I know the germs are coming. Wash my face with it. Do it we're like, oh, we're so aware of the reality that there is this invisible world all around me. There are these germs that are everywhere. The most amazing thing we're beginning to understand is that we are alive at all. Because there are so many germs. Wow. This powerful microorganism is so strong that it actually can take your life. Can you say Ebola? Yeah, Ebola. Not good, huh? Don't let that anywhere near me. Don't let it into our country. Don't allow, we don't want to be infected with that. We don't know how to stop that from killing us. And that's the picture of what's going on. So my point today is that Jesus tries to explain to us there's another invisible world that doesn't simply impact us physically. It impacts us relationally. It impacts our thinking, our worldviews, our purpose, our attitudes towards morality and purity and finances and relationships and marriages and how we date and how we do business and how we interact with one another. It impacts everything about us physically, relationally, emotionally, and it's life-threatening. It's an invisible world that's all around us, and it impacts everything we do. And yet, even as I talk about, some of you are resisting this idea. Aren't you? Yeah, you are. Because I've resisted too. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, but how do you define what is and what isn't? We, we start doing all this kind of, I, I kind of, yeah, but, uh, and Jesus tries to talk to us about that. He tells us to understand. He says, I come from above. I come from heaven. I understand how this is affecting you. And I'm trying to help you understand how to respond to this invisible world, this cadence of the cosmos that God has set in place, this rhythm of life. This wonder of how we need to respond to different things because God has set the plan in place. It impacts us. See, the same Bible that says, love one another, I like that verse. Okay? Love one another. also says, husband, love your wives. Your wife loves that verse. And then it says, children, obey your parents. Parents, don't you love that verse? I love that verse. It also says you can know God by putting your faith in him. And those of us who have love that part. But then Jesus says, oh, but there's so much more. There is so much more for you to learn about life and relationships one with another. It's an invisible world that impacts this physical one. And God has established that cadence to the cosmos, that rhythm of life. It impacts us every day, all the time. And you don't need a microscope to discover it, to see it. All you need is a rearview mirror. Looking back in your life. And we say things like this. 
how could I have been so stupid? Why did I make that decision? It seems so obvious now what I should have done and how I should have responded. It was clearly a bad idea. How could I have been so deceived, so confused? How could things have been so twisted in my mind? How in the world did that relationship that I developed, why would I think it was going to go anywhere but downhill? What was I thinking? What was I thinking? Why couldn't I see that it wasn't a pastime, but it was a pathway that leads to a habit that I'm going to have to deal with for the rest of my life? Why, why couldn't I see that at the moment? Looking back, it's so clear, but in the moment when I stood there, it just seemed like the thing to do. How could something that seemed so right be so wrong? Do you see? We even sing songs about it. Because we know it's true. This world that's around us that we find ourselves caught into. And we're twisting. We're having to pay the price physically, emotionally, relationally, financially for decisions that we made in this fog that were so wrong. And if that doesn't do it for you, just look around like some of us do periodically at the people we love, sometimes just like, but we want the best for. And they make some of the stupidest decisions I've ever seen. I want to grab them and shake them. What is wrong with you? Don't you know I love you? Yeah. Then why would you do that? I'm going to slap that shoulder right off you. I don't understand. And we cry at night and we say, oh, God, why is this happening to them? And God says, do you hear the cadence? Do you hear the cadence, Lee? Yeah, I hear it. They're not following the cadence. I know, but how can I? You can't. But I I know, but you see, we understand this. It makes so much sense now, but then they argue their case and their logic is fouled up and their thinking is twisted. And we stand outside looking, you are so going to regret this decision. But I don't know how to pull them back in to the cadence. When I was in the service, they taught you how to walk. <laughs> well, the first thing they teach you how to walk. And they teach you how to, how to march in a particular way. And when you're out of cadence, you're out of thing, you learn how to step and get back in correct position. It's a simple process you learn how to do. And in life, God is doing the same thing to us. And he's saying, look, you're out of step. Get back in step. Forgive this person. Confess your sin. Deal with that issue. Get back in step. Get back in cadence. Start to walk right again. And we're so far out, we're just just doing this. We're trying to get back in. I just can't get there. And then God steps in and says, I'll tell you what. He picks us up. And he gets us right and he puts us back down. He says, now walk again. And we start walking right again. We go, this is great. And we're loving and we go, but I really like doing. And we're back in that spot because we got twisted. We got messed up. We didn't follow the cadence of the cosmos that God had laid out for us. We didn't continue with the principle of submission. We didn't continue with the principle of purpose. Instead, we got caught up in my own self. But what about me? We said, and God says, I got you covered. But we didn't hear. We didn't listen. 
And so we continue to mess up and foul up. And Jesus says this about us as he approached Jerusalem. He saw the city and he wept over it. He said, oh, you, if only you had known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. And looking into the future, he says, the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. They'll encircle you. They'll hem you on on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. And they won't leave one stone of the temple upon the other. Because you did not recognize. You didn't see the invisible. You didn't see it. It was the time of God's coming to you. You had your chance. Embrace me. But you reject the purpose. You refuse to follow the cadence. You can't see the invisible. And that's the cry of God to us. This invisible cross. See, the issue is not would Jesus die or did Jesus need to die for us? The issue is, how would he die? How would he be presented and proclaimed? How would this all come about? God had a plan A and a plan B, but he knew plan B was the only one that was going to really happen. But he wanted to present them with plan A, that the Jewish people could respond. They could be the promised chosen ones that he always wanted them to be. They could present Jesus to the world, and then Jesus would still have to die. There was no way around that. But he didn't have to die the ignominious death that he died here. He didn't have to be whipped and beaten. He didn't have to carry his own cross and be crucified on it. But now he does. But now he does because of the refusal to understand the purpose behind the person. The refusal to receive him as the prince of peace. Not the king of kings right now. He had the power, but he was not enough to fulfill the purpose that God had set in mind for him. And Jesus would not give up his purpose in order to save his person. He would submit, as the Bible speaks to us, to the shame of the cross as he became the sacrifice for sin. And then he says to us, and let us run with perseverance the race that God has set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the pioneer. He's the perfecter of faith. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostilities from sinner so you won't grow weary and lose heart. Wives, submit to your husband. Husbands, love uh, your wives. You see, we wanted God just to say it's done. It's all taken care of. No big deal. Anybody have sin issues? No big deal. You're just forgiven. It's all over. There's no need for a sacrifice. But that's not the cadence of the cosmos. That's not the reality of life. The reality is that there must be a sacrifice for that sin. And God was willing to pay for it himself. He said, I cannot undo what was done, but I can provide the ability for all to have a relationship with God the Father again and to understand and see the invisible and to live life according to the cadence. That's the cry of Jesus as he comes to the cross and he approaches it on Palm Sunday, knowing in seven days his life would be over. And he cries out, Father, not my will. Well, hold it, Lord. What do you mean not your will? Well, well surely you, you wanted, you were, you were 
Jesus said, not my will. I don't want to submit. I don't want to die. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to go through that living hell. I don't even know if I can. But your will be done. And that's, that's the submission to the purpose to see the invisible, to hear the cadence. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us and fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. There's an invisible purpose. And so our roles as husbands and wives have an invisible purpose. And God says, surely, in the face of all my son has done, you can at least respond here. Does it sound like so much to submit now? Does it sound like so much to love now? You see, wives have a visible crown and an invisible cross. It's an upside-down kingdom. That's how it works. That's how it all comes together. Wives... To your husbands, the word actually says submit one to another. Wives, it doesn't even have the word submit there. It's not in there. It says submit one to another. Wives, to your husbands. Husbands, you submit by loving your wives. Submit one to another. Recognize there's a purpose. There's a plan. There's an intention. There's a desire. There's a direction from God. And you will gain it as you follow this intentional thing. But we start off with this wondrous crown, don't we, ladies? We have this great wedding. Are weddings for guys? No. Less than low, honey. We're hoping. We're hoping. Hey, we could spend the money on a Hawaii trip. She looks at you like, are you crazy? Are you nuts? This is my crown. I'm going to have to bear your cross. Those that are smart enough to know it. This is my crown time. And they come down the aisle and they look gorgeous. And they have this $10,000 gown on. And you're going, I can't believe it cost $10,000. That's what's going on in the back of the guy's head. It's like, wow, she looks really great. One dime it gets worn. One dime. You get the picture. It's like, it's her time, baby. It's Hosanna time. It's her time. She comes down and go, yeah, and you have the big party. And the idiot smashes the cake in her face. I go, come on, dude. She can smash it in yours and then you smile. You're, if, it's the greatest chance you got. Just submit. Get the, ha, ah, that's funny. You know, give her a hug and a kiss. And she'll be like, ooh, I got a good one. I'm going to tell him tonight just how good it is. Do you see what I mean? That's, that's a picture of this wonderful opportunity for intimacy because you showed her you love her. You submitted to her desires. You lifted her up. You cried out, Hosanna. Because to a great degree, those of you that are smarter knew that time was going to come when it's going to be very difficult for her to respect you, to yield to your direction in her life because she was going to look at you as I think of my wife. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that situation, but, you know, it was one of those where I went, this is what we need to do. This is how we need to do it. She turned to me and she said, honey, if you're stupid enough to want to do it, I'll follow you. She didn't use those exact words. She's much more subtle than I am. She just said, oh, 
well, this is what I would do in this situation. Because we always talk about it. And I go, yeah, I hear you, but I really, really, really want to do this. And she went, I really, really think it's a bad idea. I said, well, I'm, I, I'm, the, I'm the head. I'm the one you're supposed to follow, and this is what I think we ought to do. And she said, honey, if that's what you want to do, I'll follow you. I respect your judgment. I love you. Wow. Worst three and a half years of my life. Oh. I remember them vividly. I could spend hours telling you about them. We won't, but I could. Husbands, love your wives. And oftentimes that love means listen carefully. She will save you from a huge, huge amount of pain if you'll listen. Wives, respect your husband. Submit to him because when you do that, he's going to go, really? And then when you tell him what he really needs to do because you have an insight that he hasn't had because you hear the cadence and you see the invisible and you say, really, as I was praying, God, I really think I could be wrong, but... And God begins to honor this wondrous, glorious marriage that's so countercultural. You see, because the terminology Paul uses here in relationship to the head, kephal, is really the more I study, man, it really means the one who goes before. It doesn't mean the one who is bigger or smarter or better. It just means the guy who's leading the way, who's setting the course, who's saying, okay, honey, I think this is what, and you're going, okay, great. Well, and she's resetting instruction, doing the whole thing. It's a beautiful picture. Someone's got to lead. Someone's got to follow. But it's leadership with love. And it says this, this wondrous thing is God says, if the woman does this, I'll make sure that he doesn't do anything too stupid. It's really what it is. And God steps in and does this wonderful thing. The powerful picture is a picture of submission to the purpose and the cadence and the visible God speaking to us clearly and concisely when we listen. Submit like Christ. It's not natural. It's spiritual. It only makes sense in this invisible world. The question becomes to us, who will go first? Submit. Respect. Love. Lead. Who will go first? My wife told me, honey, anytime you want to, you can massage my feet. She submitted totally. Hmm. That's really what it is. Do you remember what Jesus did as his final act of leadership? Do you remember? The apostles are gathered around. It's their final time together. And Jesus takes off his robe, wraps a towel around his neck, gets a bucket of water, and walks over to the apostles' feet. And he begins to wash their dirty Stinky feet. And he said, I do this to show you that a leader serves those whom he calls to lead. And Peter says, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, I'll have nothing to do with you. If you won't submit to me in this area, then you will nowhere else. And Peter says, oh, Lord, then not just my feet, but all of me. And that's the cry that God desperately wants us to hear in our lives, one to another. It's a recognition that we no longer do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, we consider others 
better than ourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Humility, others first, you second. Interests, others first, you second. This leads up to the same attitude that Jesus had that caused him on Palm Sunday to continue moving down the path to the cross. The one who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, He made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. He's the eternal one, the beginning. He submitted in the midst of his leadership. He knows everything. He has all power, but he doesn't hang on to the position. Instead, he sees who he is as someone who can enable someone else to live. And he gives up his position and he humbles himself and he offers freedom to all of mankind because of the life that he gave. And he says, this day, you have the opportunity to do the same, to respond to the one who died on the cross for you. We admit I'm a sinner and I desperately need someone to cleanse me from sin. Who is there to do it? There's only one. There's only one. Jesus says, I can do that. I can cleanse you from your sin. I can give you forgiveness. I can provide you with freedom from guilt. If you'll confess me as Savior, as the one who died for you, and then allow me to be Lord of your life, start hearing and following the invisible. Got it? That's the cry of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Wow, what an amazing picture you give us of your son's willingness to give his life, to submit to me, to love me, to lead me, to respect me so much that he's willing to die for me. Lord, today we come to you and we ask that you'll help us to understand that truth. That we'll respond to you and yield to your will in our life. Lord, as we set aside these offerings, as we prayers down, as we begin to try simply to respond to who you are and to yield your will in our life, listen to us now as we listen to you. Help us to hear the silent cadence. Help us to see the invisible reality. You can do it. That's our prayer. Hear us today, this Palm Sunday, as we cry out, Hosanna. Hosanna to you, my Lord.